Amen. And be seated. Thanks, Joseph. Do you remember back in maybe grade school or junior high or something when um, you were going to play a game at recess or something like that, and you, and you were going to pick teams? you remember picking teams, whether it's basketball or, or kickball or, or whatever the case may be? you remember that? Who's the first person that you pick, right? So this, you said it, the best player. So if you're sitting there, and you know this happened in his life. Jordan, right, he's just a young little elementary school kid, and he's probably the best player on the, on the playground, right? And so you go to pick teams, and you're going to go pick, you're probably going to pick Jordan, and then you're going to pick LeBron second because Jordan's the greatest of all time. But um, I got an amen even on that. I don't know. The thing is, is when you pick teams, when you're going to pick a team, you're going to go with your strongest person. So if you're playing kickball, you're going to pick the best soccer player, whatever the case may be. That's exactly what we see happening in the book of Acts. Last week we talked, kind of did a recap uh, in the book of Acts from Acts 1 up to chapter 6 and just into chapter 6, just a little ways. But what's happening at the beginning of chapter 6, and you can go ahead and begin to turn there, but what's happening in, in Acts in chapter 6 is that there's a Greek-speaking synagogue and community called the, Hellenist, the Hellenistic community. And what's happening is their widows are being overlooked in the food distribution. And there's maybe some sort of a prejudice even or some kind of discrimination going on. We don't know exactly, but it's not a good thing. And so the Hellenists, as you can imagine, they kind of rise up and say, hey, this is not good. We want to see something change, something happen. And God gives the apostles this great wisdom and says, hey, why don't you pick seven guys from your community and let them lead. And they'll be in charge of the tables, they'll be in charge of the food distribution, some of the money, they'll be in charge of, uh, of leadership in that area. And that way the people who are uh, the apostles preaching and teaching and praying, we can focus on that and they can focus on that. Makes sense, right? God gave them incredible uh, wisdom in that. And what did they do? The very first person on the list is Stephen. So there's no question Stephen's kind of the rock star in the group. You always pick the first one, the best one first. He picked Stephen. They picked Stephen. And what's interesting, when they picked Stephen and they put him on this list with all these other six guys, these Greek-speaking uh, guys from the Hellenistic community, Stephen's the only one that they give qualifiers for. He's the only one they give character uh, traits about. They said Stephen's number one. He's a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And then they just give the names of the others, right? I don't know what that says about the others, but it says a lot about Stephen. So this morning we're going to jump back into chapter 6, and uh, we're going to read our text. And we're going to read this beautiful story, this glorious life and death of Stephen. But I want to just kind of warn you, we got a long text today, all right? So everybody take a deep breath, and we're going to all read this. You can read in your Bible, you can read from the screen or whatever, but I'm going to read this for us. Just follow along with me, but we got a little over a chapter, so hang in there, okay? We can do this. Ready? All right, Acts 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. 
For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Isn't that interesting? Verse 7. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran, and after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose um, their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in, in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. Verse 23. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they didn't understand. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you're brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look. There came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. 
And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in a bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation of the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us uh, out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me, uh, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, and according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it with Joshua when they disposed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked for, to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built this house for him. Yet the uh, Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these? And then the conversation changes significantly in verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You have received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Verse eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved his, of his execution. This is an amazing story. I know, I know it's long. We, we made it through it. Way to go. But it's, it's kind of hard to interrupt in the middle of this story because you, you need to know all of what's going on here with Stephen. Uh, I love ancient art. I love, like, classic art. And I wanted to show you a few pictures. This is a depiction uh, of Stephen being stoned. You can, you can kind of barely see uh, his face kind of glowing. Do we have another picture? Some of these pictures uh, show Paul in the background or Saul as it's described in here. 
but I want to just kind of give an image to maybe what's going on. Stephen's this amazing person. Scripture tells us in in the text that we had last week that he was a man that was full of uh, faith and full of the Spirit of God. Well, the text this week says that Stephen was uh, full of grace and power. And a little bit later in the text, it says he's full of wisdom. I'm like, man, this guy's got it all. He's full of faith. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He's full of grace, and he's full of power and wisdom. It sounds to me like a pretty amazing leader, does it to you? The thing I love about it is him putting these two together, full of grace and power. What I love about this is the fact that when somebody's full of grace, I believe it's because they understand it. They understand it because they need it. When you're full of grace, you know that it's because you've had a great need of it. And when you've had a great need of grace, it's easier to offer to people who need it. People who wrong you, people who, who you just don't like, they've done something you don't approve of or whatever. We just need to offer grace. And why do we offer it? Because it's been offered and given to us. But if you couple that with power, somebody who's a grace-receiving uh, and giving person with power, you know, power gets a bad trip sometimes. We think if somebody's got power, oh boy, it's going to go to their head or whatever. But that's not what we see in Stephen's case. God is giving him power. And God has also given him wisdom and grace and faith. And he's using him for his glory in a mighty, mighty way with this Stephen. We see in this text that Stephen's doing something that really we thought only the apostles were doing. And that's doing miracles, right? Stephen's the first person outside of the apostles that's now doing great wonders and signs among the people. It's kind of a big deal. And let me promise you something. Anytime God begins to do a great work through somebody or through a group of people, and he, his mission is going forward, his kingdom is advancing, every time that happens, trust me, there will be conflict. Bar none. You can see it in Scripture. It's the, it's the way we read in Scripture constantly. Every time God's people begin to move forward, Every time God begins to work in someone's heart, in your heart, can you witness to that? Can you testify to that? Something's going great in you, and then all of a sudden what happens? You run into conflict, right? There will always be an opposing force against us, uh, whether that's in the heavenly realms or in earthly people. There will always be people, uh, a contingent of people to oppose the work and the presence of God. That's the way it is. It says in the text, those who belong to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. Now, the freedmen's synagogue, this, this would have been people who were former slaves or their descendants of slaves. That's what that means. And we see all these different Greek-speaking cultures coming together in this one synagogue. And guess who was probably present at this synagogue? Saul. And it doesn't say that, but Saul was a Greek-speaking Jew, and this was his people. So it's very likely that Saul was present in that group of people. And it's very, just based on what we know about Saul, it's very likely that Saul rose up as well, right? Because that's what Saul does. It's his personality. It's very likely that Saul and Stephen got into it. But what's interesting is this text tells us Saul would have lost to Stephen. It says uh, in verse 10, they could not stand the wisdom and spirit with which he was speaking. 
See, it wasn't because Stephen was such a great speaker. It wasn't because he was so brilliant, though I believe he was. I think the simple truth is because the Holy Spirit was with him. God was with him. There's nothing special necessarily about Stephen except that of Jesus' presence in him. His spirit leading him, giving him the things to say. And Saul, though he was powerful, couldn't stand up against Stephen's wisdom and the spirit of God in him. And then what happens second? After God's doing a work in somebody's heart, after he's moving in you, after you've chosen to serve him and love him and know him more, the enemy comes in, right? Somebody comes in and wants to discourage you and, and remove you from that advancement of the kingdom in your life. Well, if they can't disrupt you, or if they can't argue with you, if they can't uh, get into your mind or your heart, what do they do? They lie. They want to create narratives that are not truthful. They're not consistent with the truth. It happens all the time. It happens all the time. It's what we see happen here in Stephen's story. It says in verse 11, they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Now, do you think Stephen is the kind of person that was speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God? No, that wasn't happening. Not at all. It, it, it just didn't happen. So, but it's these lies that land Stephen in front of this council. It's people lying about uh, this thing with him saying he's dishonoring Moses and the law that lands him in front of the council. So, uh, look at verse 13. It says, and they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So all kinds of lies, all kinds of narratives that are being tweaked and changed because they can't stand up to the wisdom in him. And they didn't like the movement of God through him. And so they start lying about him. There's three accusations that happen right here in Stephen's life. Number one, they're saying he's speaking against Moses and God. Not true. Number two, they say he's speaking against the temple and the law. And let me tell you something. Those two accusations right there are enough in Jewish law to kill him. That's enough to, to stone Stephen. But then they add a third, and it's the most significant one. They say that Stephen is saying that Jesus will destroy the temple and change its customs. Now, this is what's interesting. <laughs> this is exactly what they did to Jesus. Mark 14, verse 57. This is the exact same thing they did to Jesus. In fact, it's the same order of what they did to Jesus. They stirred up lies about him. They got people to lie, false witnesses about him, right? And then they accused him of attacking the law of Moses and the temple. And then lastly, ultimately, they crucified Jesus. This is the same thing they're doing to Stephen. They stir up lies. They accuse him of attacking the law, Moses, the temple, and then they were going to execute him. But see, the thing we got to see through here is it's not about Stephen. This is about Jesus. To accept Stephen's message is to accept Jesus and his message. So this isn't even necessarily a rejection of Stephen. It's a rejection of Jesus. Do you see that? There's a deeper lying understanding. There's a deeper lying truth that's happening here. What's happening is they've placed Jesus back on trial. It's not about Stephen. This is about Jesus and rejection of Jesus. 
I love this verse, verse 15. It says, and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I love to just in my mind kind of picture what in the world was going on there. What, what was happening there, right? What's interesting is the council that Stephen was standing in front of, they would have been familiar with the story of Moses. You remember the story of Moses from Mount Sinai? He comes down from being in the presence of God, and what's his face doing? It's shining, remember? And so they have to put a, he has to put a veil over his face because his face is literally shining because he's been in the presence of God. It's all, to me, I love it, the irony here because it's almost as if God is saying to the council, who's a stiff-necked people that won't listen, He's not against Moses, he's like Moses. He's like Moses because he's been with me. He's been faithful to me. He's not against Moses. It's silly. And yet they all sit here and make these accusations, but they're looking at this face that is the face of an angel. And I just begin to ask myself this question, what kind of confidence does it take for somebody to stand in front of a a group of people that hate you? that want you to die and yet be cool under pressure, so much so that your countenance is that of an angel? Or what kind of trust and faith in the message that you've been given must you have and the God who's given it to you in order for his countenance, his presence to shine through you in this crazy moment? And what kind of hope? Listen, was Stephen worried for his life? I mean, he should have been, in essence, because this is the same council that Jesus stood before. This is the same council that just last week we talked about, the apostles stood before, and they wanted to kill them, remember? And Gamaliel stands up and says, hang on, let's just let them go this time. They beat the apostles and sent them on their way. Stephen knows this. This is the same council. Would you be nervous? Especially if you know the accusation is one that the law says you should be stoned for. And yet his countenance, his hope is not in himself. And he's not afraid of this counsel. He has a fear of the greatest counselor, right? Because he knows that God holds his life in his hands, not these men. And if God chooses to take his life, then that's up to him. And somehow the presence of God comes through even in his face. And then I want to just break down this morning. Very quickly, this message that Stephen has preached. You know, all my life I've read uh, this message Stephen preaches, and I've never really understood it that much. And I've been so thankful for moments like this to really dig in and try to understand what's going on. It seems to me in a way that, that this message Stephen preaches before the council, it's almost like just a big history lesson. And if you take it just on face value, that's what you see. These men of all people, they're scribes and lawyers, they're priests, Sadducees and Pharisees, they would have known these stories to the nth degree. They they would have known everything about the stories that Stephen speaks. But it's not the history and not the story that Stephen's trying to make them aware of. This is the longest uh, message given in the book of Acts. And yes, Stephen goes over the history and contributions of the leaders of Israel, but it's more, it's not about that. (laughs) It's about the reality that You're charging me with with going against uh, Moses and the law and the temple when you have done that, when the nation of Israel has done that. And so I want us to look just a little deeper into this message. 
I want to break it down into five different sections. Number one, he speaks of Abraham. Very important patriarch, right, of the Jewish faith and people. Verses 1 through 8. The reality is this council didn't understand their spiritual roots. They didn't get it. They, didn't, they knew Abraham. They knew Abraham was the founder of the Hebrew nation. But Romans 4 tells us that Abraham was saved by grace through faith. It's not because he had been circumcised, not because he kept the law or he worshipped in some temple or tabernacle or something like that. Those weren't the reasons. He was saved because he believed the promises of God and that was the faith that saved him. But see, here's the problem. We do the same thing. The Jews prided themselves from being descendants of Abraham. This is, they're in the lineage, it's their heritage under Abraham. But the problem is they confuse their physical descent with spiritual experience. And we do the same thing sometimes. This is what I mean. My, my dad's a preacher, so I guess I'm a Christian. My, my grandfather was, was a deacon in that church down there, and therefore I guess I'm going to heaven. Listen, some people like to say it like this. God doesn't have any grandchildren. Every person, listen carefully, every person in this room, every person in the world has to make a personal decision to follow Jesus. Right? Every single one of us has to choose to follow Christ with our lives. But what this, these Jews had done over history and what these, these in the council were doing they were just confusing their physical descent. They were relying on their physical heritage and not their spiritual, personal faith. And then what they did is they took a sign. God gave them this sign of covenant, right? It was a, it was a sign of circumcision. And they said, well, if we're from this descent and we have this sign, I guess we got all that we need. And they missed what the sign was about. What about a sign? It was about an inner relational reality. See, sometimes we get symbols mixed up with significance in the Savior, relationship with the Savior. Catholics do this a lot. We have Catholic brothers and sisters, I'm sure, that love Jesus and know Jesus. I believe that. But many Catholics get this confused, and they place importance and significance on symbols instead of an inner reality, a relational reality with Jesus. It's the same thing that these Jews and the nation had done prided themselves on the sign of circumcision, but they didn't see it as an inner reality in their lives. All right, this next section that he, he speaks on, verses 9 through 36, what he's saying to them is, you have rejected our deliverers. You have rejected our deliverers. He speaks of these two men, Joseph and Moses, both deliverers. Joseph, he says, and you're, everybody remembers the story of Joseph. I love it. Joseph had been put through the ringer, hadn't he? I mean... And he comes out on top. Joseph is now in command of, of uh, Egypt. And his brothers come for grain because they're living through a famine. And Joseph doesn't reveal himself to his brothers. They don't recognize him as their brother. They go away. He come, they come back. He reveals himself. They recognize that this is their brother. The second time they come. Right? And he, he, his family uh, is, is united, reunited in that way. But it's not the first time. It's the second time they recognize him. Same thing with Moses. This is what Stephen's saying. First time Moses wanted to be recognized as the deliverer. And he gets frustrated in his heart about this uh, Egyptian wrestling with this Hebrew. And so he fights and ultimately murders this Egyptian. 
And he says, let's, you know, he's wanting in his heart for them to follow him. But the next day, right, the Hebrew says, who do you think you are? Judge and ruler of us? They don't recognize him as a deliverer. He goes away for 40 years and he comes back. And guess what? They recognize him on the second time. He is the deliverer of the Jews from the Egyptians. It's the same with Jesus. Jesus comes the first time and people don't recognize him as the saving deliverer of mankind. But let me promise you something, church. The second time he comes, there'll be no mistaking who he is. There'll be no mistaking what he's coming to do to rescue us. I promise you. Here's the next thing in verses 37 through 43. He's saying to them, you're you're mad at me for the law? Something I said against the law? When you yourselves, Israel, you've not followed the law. You don't obey the law. Stephen was, uh, he'd been accused of this, but he's, he's making it clear here that the nation itself had not been following the law. We read in the text that they began to follow idols. That he was turning them over to uh, demon worship. I mean, can you imagine? I just, I can't think. The whole assembly of Israel, the base of the mountain, God's shown up in a cloud and lightning and fire, and he has led them. There's no question who he is and that this is his people. And Moses goes up for a little while, and they, they say, well, we don't know where Moses is. Let's go ahead and worship a golden calf. And we get so frustrated with the Israelites when we do the same thing every single day. How many times has God proven himself to us and provided for us, and yet at some point we go, I'm just going to trust in something else. I'm going to trust in my job. I'm going to trust in what I can do, the work of my own hands. And it's the same thing the Israelites did at the base of the mountain. They accused him of despising the temple. And in verses 44 through 50, Stephen basically says, yeah, listen, you're accusing me of this? The nation has despised the temple of God. He says at one time, yeah, at one time God's presence was here in the Holy of Holies. At one time this was a beautiful place where God would make his manifest presence known. But over the years the nation of Israel has done away with the presence of God. And there have been idols set up in the temple. In fact, Jeremiah warned the nation uh, that the temple had become a den of thieves. And that reminded me of Jesus, right? When Jesus goes to the temple and he turns over the, the tables and he says, this is my father's house to be a house of worship and prayer, not a house of thieves. Stephen's saying, listen, you're blaming me for saying something about the law and the temple when really you haven't honored the temple. And then this one is maybe the most serious says, you've resisted the truth of God. You've resisted the truth of God in verses 51 through 53. And the direction of the conversation, I mentioned it when I was reading it, completely changes. It goes from one of, hey, remember, here's the history of where we've been and where we've messed up, and it becomes personal, doesn't it? And Stephen is all but pointing his fingers and saying, you stiff-necked people. You're saying, I've done this. You've done this. You're guilty. You're guilty. The conversation totally changes. He's saying through the centuries, Israel has refused to submit and obey God. And then he makes it even personal in just in the last time frame when he says, God sent the messenger to tell that the Holy One was coming, speaking of John the Baptist. 
And what did you do? You murdered the messenger. And then Jesus, the Messiah, comes. And what did you do? You murdered the Messiah. You know, I think it's so interesting. One commentator I looked at this week said, when Herod murdered John the Baptist, he had to go to the council for permission. And the council allowed him, allowed him to murder John the Baptist. Well, when they killed Jesus, the council actually went to Pilate and asked for Jesus to be crucified. But what happens here with Stephen? They take care of it themselves, don't they? Do you see this ramping up? That's the way sin will do in our lives. We just give it a little foothold. We just say, well, this won't hurt. I'll just do this a little bit here. I'll just look over here right now. I'll just make this one mistake, and I'll jump back on track. But let me tell you something. They begin on this trajectory, this downward spiral of bloodlust. They allowed for John the Baptist to be murdered. And then they asked for Jesus to be crucified. And then when Stephen says what he says, they get enraged and they take this into their own hands and they murder Stephen outside the gates of Jerusalem. Stephen says, you received the law, but you didn't keep it. You received it, but you didn't keep it. And it reminded me so much of the words of Jesus in Matthew 15, verse 7, when he said, so for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Oh, boy. You're going to follow your tradition instead of the word of God. He says, you hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me? In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. God forbid we ever teach in this church the doctrine of men or the commandments of men and not the word of God. That's all that matters. Not your opinion, not mine. Only God's opinion that we're true to it. That's all we should be speaking of. And Stephen speaks this to this council, and they get hacked off at Stephen. Says that they, they grind their teeth. You ever had anybody grind their teeth at you? Scary. But you don't see Stephen scared. They're so enraged that they rush against Stephen. And somehow Stephen is still composed. He's still so full of the Holy Spirit. Look what it says here in the text, in verse 55. Full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, I keep emphasizing the word standing because it's interesting. Psalm 110 and Mark 16 both describe Jesus as going to the Father and being seated at his right hand, right? Jesus will go to the Father and he will be seated at his right hand. But that's not what Stephen sees. In this moment, Stephen gazes into heaven. He doesn't see Jesus seated. He sees Jesus standing. Got any sports fans in the house? What happens when there's an exciting moment? Oh, boy. Oh, what's going to happen right now? Are we going to make it? Listen. Jesus is your champion. He is championing you. He is encouraging you. He stands up so that Stephen gazes into heaven and he sees his Savior not seated. He's standing. He's going, come on, Stephen. Hang in there, Stephen. You can do this. He's standing as if he's going to welcome the church's first martyr into heaven. And you can just hear him saying the words, oh, well done. 
Well done, my good and faithful servant. You know, sometimes I believe God, I believe this with all my heart. Sometimes on our deathbed, right before we die, and many of you have stories. Many of your grandparents have stories. You've heard of stories where just before someone dies, they, they say something or they sing something or they reach out to someone. You know what I'm talking about? This is biblical proof of sometimes God gives us a vision of something we can't see, of a place we haven't been. How beautiful and grace-giving and wonderful that God would do that for us in moments right before we pass. I believe he does that sometimes, and we see that he's done it for Stephen. He's encouraging Stephen. They go to stone him, and listen, this is not going to be an easy process. This is going to be a violent process. In fact, they're going to work up a sweat to murder Stephen. And they rush him out of, the, out of the city, just outside of a place called the Lion's Gate. I think we have a picture. I've stood in this place, and the guide said, uh, hey, this is called the Lion's Gate. This is the place where they believe Stephen was stoned. You can't see it because it's such a big picture, but on the sides of that wall is two lions facing each other carved into the wall, and that's why it's called the Lion's Gate. They worked up a sweat to stone Stephen, and so they take off their coats, and they take their coats over to this young man by the name of Saul. It's almost as if Saul's in charge. It's almost as if Saul's saying, you're going to beat me now? Let's see what happens now, Stephen. And they go to stone Stephen, you know, all through Stephen's story, he's resembled Jesus, hadn't he? And listen, if you ever in your life at any point resemble Jesus, that's a good thing. Do more of that. Become more like that. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, so was Jesus. Full of wisdom, full of faith, full of grace, full of power, so was Jesus. And here right before he dies, we see more Jesus' presence in Stephen's life. Right before he dies, Stephen cries out, Jesus, receive my spirit. He's looking at Jesus in heaven. He's seeing him, and he's saying, Jesus, receive my spirit. Does that sound like anybody? Jesus on the cross said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Same thing. And just before he dies, the Bible says he loudly cries out, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. That's not only almost identical to what Jesus said, right? Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This is almost verbatim. It's not the words that are, that are so powerful. It's the heart. Jesus showed us this on the cross with, with the thief. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The men that are, that are nailing my hands and feet into the cross. And we see the same heart of forgiveness, the same presence of grace in Stephen. When he says, Lord, don't hold this against them. Can you imagine? He's not full of anger. He doesn't want revenge. He's not full of fear even. He's full of the Spirit of God. And the thing that's on our hearts when we're full of the Spirit is not us. It's God's people. It's the people he loves. It's the people he wants to reach. 
And Stephen sees a bigger picture than even this moment of his death. And he says, Lord, don't hold this against him. Well, listen, as we close this morning, can I just ask us a couple of questions? This is a, a wonderful story. But what do we learn from this huge text of Scripture? What do we learn from this little um, characterization of who Stephen is and then this message that we hear from Stephen? This indictment against Israel. This death offered so gloriously for the advancement of the gospel. What do we learn? Well, <laughs> number one, when you honor God with your life, there is no limit to what God can do through you. When you honor God with your life in such a way that, you, that people characterize you as, man, he's full of faith. That guy's got the spirit. A lot of wisdom in that guy. Man, he's so full of grace. When you begin to, to have these type of characteristics in your life, there is literally no limit to what God can do through you. Listen, Stephen was given a job, wasn't he? Remember what his job was? Was it preacher? No. Let's see here. Was it martyr? No. He was given a job. He was given a responsibility, and that job was to be waiter. Stephen, be the waiter. But guess what? That title didn't define Stephen. It didn't define Stephen. He, he, he took it farther than they ever expected. In the same way, listen, single mom, father working a job that you want a different job, college student, stay-at-home mom, whatever your situation may be, elderly person who doesn't work your, your what's my purpose in life and what's don't let this season of your life define you don't let it define you be so full of the spirit be so full of the presence of God that you rise above what even people expect of you and you let him use you let him define you let him use you in ways that you could never dream Stephen has not been remembered as Stephen the waiter, has he? He's Stephen the glorious martyr of the church. God defines us. We leave the outcomes to God. And when we love him with our lives, with all that we are, our very face, our very countenance, all that we are will radiate the presence and person of Jesus. Have you been letting something define you that shouldn't? Listen, when we walk in the Spirit of God, we can walk with wisdom, we can walk with conviction, even in the middle of conflict, even in the middle of lies. Don't you know Stephen wanted to go, that's not true. What, do you, what that guy said is not true, I don't even know that guy. Sure he did. But the lies didn't matter. In fact, God even used that narrative to advance his purposes for the glory of God. And he will use the lies against the church. He will use the lies against me and my life. He will use lies and a narrative that's not true against you for his glory if we'll just keep our eyes on him. Not worry about the outcome. Keep our eyes on him. Listen, do people characterize your life as somebody full of grace and faith and wisdom and power, full of the spirit? And if not, why not? Maybe it's time you took an inventory of your soul and you said, God, I want that to change. 
I want to be the kind of person that when people think of me, they don't just say my name. They say some things attached to my name. Oh, that's Drew. He loves Jesus. That's Drew. He's full of the Spirit. He's full of faith. Oh, that that would be the case for my lives. And if not, why not? No matter the fire, no matter the trial you walk through, no matter the counsel that you face, we can be confident. God's story, we can be confident of what he's doing in us and through us because it's for his glory. It's his story. You remember last week we talked about the opportune moment? We talked about just looking at this uh, overview of chapters 1 through 6. It's just, it's kind of easy to see in the overview that Peter and John and, and others stepped into this opportune moment. The Spirit moves first. The Spirit leads. And when the Spirit leads in such a beautiful way, now it's our job to step into those opportune moments and say, God, how will you use my life? Do you remember that? So my question is, this is exactly what Stephen has done. Will it be what you do? And when you get that opportune moment, will you know the word of God? Will you know the story of God? This is one of the reasons we want to be a church that makes disciples who make disciples. Discipleship is very important. This is our very number one core value, transformative discipleship. It's not enough just to be a church and show up and come to church. That's not enough. Christian, you need to know the word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2 says, be ready. Whether you think a season is coming where you have to give an answer or not, be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have in Jesus. When you have an opportune moment, will you be ready? Will you know the word to be able to share the story? And then I'm going to close with this. Listen, Stephen's life, what I love about this story is, man, there's not a bad thing about Stephen in here. There's not a whole lot of people in Scripture that we don't see bad things about, right? Ups and downs like real human beings, like all of us. Stephen lived his life. He was a sinner. Says he was full of grace, and because of that, I believe that he understood it. And I think he understood that he needed it. But Stephen's life was a glorious life because he lived it for Jesus. Stephen's life was a glorious life because he served people. Stephen's life was a glorious life because he was not afraid to step into an opportune moment and be bold, not because of him, but because of the Spirit of God in him. And listen, there's going to be a time when God calls us home. Are we going to be afraid of the moment? Whether it's 45 or 95 there's a way that we can offer our lives gloriously, even in death. Even in death. Until the breath is taken from your lungs, God has a purpose for your life. Are you using it for his purposes? Are you bringing him glory? Are you stepping into opportune moments to make him known in boldness? Would you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this story of Stephen. God, thank you that he has lived his life um, so full of faith and grace and power and wisdom, but mostly full of the Spirit of God. And so, Lord, would you help us to learn from this man? 
Help us to be willing to serve you and your church. Help us to be willing to, to take responsibilities. Help us to be willing to lead. Help us to be people of faith. God, give us a vision that is not just horizontal but vertical. May our eyes see you and not just the circumstances of our lives. God, help us not to define who we are and what you want to do in and through us because of our immediate circumstance and season right now. Lord, may we be identified. May we be defined. May we find our identity in you and you alone. And may you do something in and through us, God, that we can't even imagine. And help us not to worry about the outcomes. Just to be faithful to you. Just to be looking to you, Lord to what you want to do in us and through us for your glory. Give us boldness and make us ready, Lord God, for your word to speak the truth of who you are to a world who so desperately needs it. And Lord, when it comes time for us to die, I pray that we've lived a glorious life and we can offer a glory-giving death. And we too will see you standing, waiting to receive us saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Father, if there's anybody here this morning that's, they would say, you know, I'm, those characteristics of Stephen's life, they're not in my life, but I want them to be. Father, would you give them the courage today just to pray, just to seek you, just to come down maybe and have a conversation? Or would you give them the courage to make some changes in their lives, to move them toward Christ-likeness and transformative discipleship in who they are? Because, God, there is coming a moment where we will all face the end of our lives. Will we be ready? Lord, if there's one person here this morning who doesn't know you as their Savior, Lord Jesus, would you save them today? God, would you do a miracle-working uh, action in their hearts today? Would you draw them to yourself and help them to trust you? If they need to talk to one of us as pastors, we would love that. But, Lord, help them not to leave this room today without knowing that they've trusted and given their lives to you as their Savior. Lord, we love you with all that we are. And we give you this time as we worship you and we focus on who you want us to be and how you want us to speak for you in all boldness. Do what only you can through us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand this morning?